Hello and welcome to episode 17 of the Long Walk to Nowhere podcast. I'm Patrick Butler, and I'm here with the author of Long Walk to Nowhere, Alan Mung. Now we haven't re um, released a podcast recently because we've switched to a monthly format and we first of all wanted to announce the, the good news that we've, you know, the podcast has been received in 29 countries around the world, which has been a huge vindication and success for the podcast. And we've now decided to expand the podcast into new platforms, uh, potentially ones like Swell and Clubhouse. But we wanted to continue doing the podcast because we found such a strong engagement from the audience. And this week, Alan and I wanted to discuss stories which pertain to Africa, but not necessarily to Zimbabwe, just to expand our horizons slightly. Because there's so much going on in Africa and a lot of it underreported in some cases. And even there are other stories where we thought that we had interesting things to say. So in this week's podcast, I think we're going to deal with three topics. The first one is um, Jacob Zuma's trial in South Africa. And then we wanted to have a quick look at what's going on in Mozambique and in Swaziland. So, Alan, why don't we start off with the Jacob Zuma trial? And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about if you've been following the developments of the trial, what you think's been going on, how you feel about the trial. Yes, well, hello, Patrick, and hello to everybody. Um, well, Zuma is facing 16 charges of fraud, as we know. Um, and, you know, the racketeering relating to the 1999 purchase of fighter jets, patrol boats, and military um, gear from from the European European arms firms. And I think it was something in the, in the region of 30 billion rand, which equated to about 5 billion US dollars, which is an enormous amount of money. Um, and of course, uh, b because, you know, Zuma is a very powerful man with a huge following. And, uh, you know, we, we all, when we're on the outside looking in at Africa, um, we see... Uh, a system that looks as if it's similar to our Western democratic ways and our, and our court procedures and so on. I mean, all the judges are dressed up in their, what, what I used to call their, their colonial gear. And they look much the same, you know, as, 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 our, as our judges do in, in the West. But there, there's a lot of influence that, that's, that, that affects people's opinions, like juror, jurors' opinions and, and, and the public's opinions, related to African culture, which one should understand and try and appreciate when, when, when analyzing you know, the outcomes of these, of these, of these cases. Uh, in particular, I, 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 I would mention the fact that you know, Zuma is 79 years old, uh, a fair age for, for an African politician. And, um, of course, the elders uh, in African customs are highly respected and revered, sometimes due to just the, 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 the social customs and others due to ancestral worship, because when you get old, you, you're going to die next and you'll reach the ancestors and they'll ask you how, how you were treated by your, your peers, you know, down, down on our realm. And, and it's very important that the message that 
the, the dead person gives to their ancestors is a favorable one. Um, and, and so these all these uh, cultural things have a huge bearing on, on trials such as this. Now, if we take Mugabe, for example, I mean, he was in his 90s when the, the coup or the takeover happened. And even though he had done so much damage to the country, people were calling for him to, to rest in peace, not to put him in jail. He was an old man. He was to go home and, and retire gracefully, irrespective of what he had done. Now, the same thing is happening, I think, with Zuma. You know, um, uh, he, 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 he is respected. He's seen as a liberator. And uh, there are many people who, who have come to the court and, and who, who openly say, look, they've come to support President Zuma. Uh, uh, yeah, and they're all, they're all there because they believe he's an older man. He, he's a man that's done, done them proud in terms of their liberation and uh, that he should be allowed, irrespective of, of, of outcomes in the court, to go home with grace and dignity and just be himself and, 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 and allowed to, you know, pass on uh, to the next realm uh, in peace. So all these things um, have a bearing on a trial. Uh, and uh, although the courtrooms and all the, the, the legal jargon sounds the same, there's a lot of psychological stuff going on behind the scenes. Yeah, it's a, it's a very interesting story. I was also um, listening to all the rhetoric that was going around it. Um, his son, Edward Zuma, who's quite a firebrand, warning that there would be blood on the floor if he was arrested. Um, and in the end, there wasn't, luckily, but uh, very dramatic scenes with the convoy vehicles and, and the scale of the corruption is quite breathtaking. I think the, the BBC had reported as being around three billion pounds, but... Um, I mean, I think it's been coming for quite a while, this, this story of corruption and also the, the role of the ANC and the position of the ANC over time, because, of, of course, it has Mandela's legacy. But what's happened afterwards in the ANC is not necessarily... Um, I think quite, Mandela is turning in his grave, quite honestly. As attractive what's I mean, going on in South African politics. Um, mm, I mean, I mean Zuma, he, he, he's consistently maintained that no one, not even him, you know, it's above the law. Uh, and uh, this is what he's claiming all the time. But at his advanced age, you know, people are saying, gosh, he should be allowed to, to move into obscurity, <laughs> to he just does, go away. I mean, he's, 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 had, he's had lots of legal problems before. I mean, I think he was, um, I think there was a rape charge of a family friend that he, he'd been charged with raping. He was acquitted in the early 2000s and then there was a, another arms deal that he'd done in 1999 which was dropped when he became president and i think there were other corruption cases in in the last few years and uh, also government money for for home upgrades um and god so on and yes. so forth and his relationships with the gupta family and i i know that there's there's always been um ever every time you you read about Zuma, almost uh rather strong um, and detailed charges of corruption. Yes, I, I think, you know, you, 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 you just have to look at his lifestyle and then look at his, um, the, you know, the salary that he is the uh, former president was supposed to earn as, an, as a politician he was supposed to earn and then compare that salary with his lifestyle. I mean, the two just don't marry up at all. And so there must be money coming in from somewhere else. That's the big question from where, of course. And the same happened with Mugabe. That's how he 
the people are beginning to say, look, he's driving around and all, you know, he's got a private jet and he lives in this mansion, but he's only earning X, Y, and Z, you know. How, how on earth did he afford to, to buy all these things? Yes. Uh, and, and so one, one questions this. But, you know, you know, also in South Africa, you know, people just say, oh, well, the ANC are so powerful, they'll, you know, they'll overcome the Zuma trial and make sure he's okay. But one, one must remember that the ANC itself is split right down the middle. I mean, Zuma's successor, Cyril Ramposa, the president now, you know, he's vowed to root out corruption. But, I mean, it's common knowledge that there's no love lost between him and, 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 and ex-president Zuma. There's no love lost at all. So it isn't just a case of, well, the ANC is so powerful they can overcome the law, you know, and, and uh, it isn't that at all because the ANC is divided. And, and there are some members of the ANC who are hoping that Zuma does get, uh, you know, put away. And then there are others, of course, who are hoping he isn't. So it's a very complicated issue. And what do you think it bodes for the future of South African politics in general? I, I think, you know, if, look, I, I, I don't know the facts and I can't say that Zuma is, is uh, I haven't got the facts to say that he's guilty. But just to assume that he is and, and that he's proved to be, but, but nonetheless the courts, because there are two courts, aren't there, at the moment, and of course we, uh, both courts are, are having different, um, suggesting different outcomes uh, from the trials, but... Just to su suggest that perhaps he 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 he's, he is guilty, and and that he's then uh, uh, the, the court chooses to to let him off. This this opens up tremendous problems for 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 South Africa because it just gives carte blanche to anybody, everybody, to become, you know, criminals, and, and just ra steal from the country's um, uh, coffers. South Africa is a really rich country. It should be it should be right up there with all the leading countries in the world, um, and it's not because of this corruption. And uh, the same with Zimbabwe. Same, you know, with, with with Uganda. You name you name it. There are loads of countries in Africa who and and in the world who are suffering from these kleptocrats. But if he's allowed to to get away with this, if he is proven guilty. And I add, if he is, then um, I think the, there's going to be a catastrophe in South Africa. No, I, I think that's that's really interesting. I, I do think m many, many, many people, of course, all over the world worry about South African politics and what the country should be and the state that it's in, uh, in fact, are two very different things um, and what it means for the future of Africa. Um, now, another really interesting story I thought is... is um, the one that's going on about Mozambique at the moment. And I know you had some interesting thoughts about Mozambique, and I was wondering if you could share those with our listeners. Yes, well, of course, Mozambique, uh, you know, as a Rhodesian born, we, we, we used to always look upon Mozambique as our holiday paradise. You know, we used to love that country um, when it was run by the Portuguese, perhaps not that efficiently, but still it was a lovely place to go, beautiful beaches and so on. And um, uh, lovely people, absolutely welcoming, friendly people. But, of course, you know, when, when they had their own, uh, when, when the Portuguese left rather hastily, uh, they didn't leave with an infrastructure, anything like uh, the Rhodesians left behind. Uh, 
And, um, of course, uh, chaos happened. The Renamo and the Frelima, the two, the, the two different political uh, armies and parties, you know, raged war. And, of course, no one, no one benefited from it. And Mozambique was, um, you know, was a catastrophe and still perhaps is, politically and economically. But what's going on in the north now of Mozambique is terribly, terribly worrying. I mean, even Zanu Piefo, the, the, the impenetrable, uh, iron-fisted Zanu Piefo in Zimbabwe, I think are fearful of what's going on in the north of Mozambique. Because these chaps there, I mean, they're, they're ruthless. And I mean, if they, they have an agenda which is scary, really scary. And I mean, all the countries, and the Mozambique borders many countries. I mean, Swaziland's one, I mean, Zimbabwe, Zambia, South Africa, Lesotho. Uh, and if you know, because when Mozambique fell in the days of Rhodesia, that was that was the end of, of Ian Smith's white government because. Um, you know, there was no, no longer a, a, a rail, railway link or a road link to the sea, other than through South Africa. So Mozambique is a very, geopolitically, it's a very important country. And of course, it's a vast country. And, and to, to, to maintain peace and order up there in the north, when you're living, say, down in Bayra or Maputo, and you haven't really got an infrastructure to fight that sort of thing, um, you know, one wonders what, what the outcome of that will be. And it seems like it's a perfect storm of problems because, um, of course, you have the security problems in Cabo Delgado, which have been going on for almost three years now um, with tremendous violence in the parks. But then you've also had, I think, terrible food, so uh, food shortages, uh, very severe drought. And there's also been a, a lot of COVID-19 cases, which have created... I think a rather perfect uh, storm for humanitarian problems. Um, I believe there have also been at least 700,000 displaced people in Mozambique so far. I know there were relief efforts which were being sent, very, but but it's still an effort from the Italians and the Portuguese to try and help. Um, and I, I know they're planning flights into the country at the moment. I think African News was reporting on that. But Yes, I mean, that's, that's wonderful that they're doing that. But they're, they're, all they're doing is, is placing sticky plaster over a, a festering wound, you know. Um, it's, it's, it's just it's sad. I mean, the intentions are perhaps good, but the causes, we go back to the causes. What's happening in Africa? Why is it happening? And it's happening because the West are allowing, allowing these kleptocrats to continue their... their, their their terrible uh, rule, uh, uh, and and they 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 could care less for the people that they're supposed to be governing. And they're all looking after themselves. One has to get to the cause of this. Just you know, to place sticky plaster over all this these festering wounds. How can it ever ever help? How can it stop all the nonsense that's going on? It can't. And, you know, it's like a cancer. It's just going to spread. And it's I like think, a virus. I think there was also the embarrassment for the South Africans. I think the South Africans were caught uh, quite badly out in a spine operation they'd sent to, to Cabo Delgado in northern Mozambique. And I think it was a complete disaster for the um, South African se secret services. 
And it was just at the time that Ramaphosa was going in for negotiations. And so I think mm. there's been external involvement from other African countries, which have been quite disastrous, actually. Yes. Uh, but I know the South African operation in particular was a complete failure. I think they, they had a terrible time trying to get the South African spies out. And mm. that, that I think one, one must remember in a terrorist war that these chaps, these terror, you know, the terrorists or the enemy or the freedom fighters, call them whatever you want, have nothing to lose and everything to gain. And when you're fighting a war and you have nothing to lose and everything to gain, you know, you, 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 you become a, a, you know, almost like heroes, you know, to each other. And there's no fear. There's no fear. Um, and, of course, South Africa, Zimbabwe, there's so much to lose because they're wealthy countries. And what are these chaps after, the, the, these, these chaps who are trying to take over that part of Africa? They're after the wealth. They're after all the amazing wealth that, uh, that these countries have. They're not interested in helping the people. Um, and so, you know, they have nothing to lose and everything to gain. And that's a, that's a dangerous enemy to have, a very dangerous enemy to have. Now, I wanted to move to a neighboring country because we were talking about the, the very interesting anti-monarchy protests which are going on in Eswatini, uh, which is, the, of course, the new name for Swaziland. Um, I know you've been following this as well. So do, what could you tell our listeners about the, the anti-monarchy protests going on there? Well, I mean, I, I, I actually had a business once in, in Swaziland and I lived there for a couple of years to, you know, trying to, to build up um, an infrastructure it's a beautiful country. Um, it was it was in the days of King Swati the Third's grandfather. Uh, this was in the eighties, the nineteen eighties. Uh, Swaziland's a beautiful country, a landlocked country that that's of course within the Rand area, uh, as part of the Sadak region, a landlocked uh, and very dependent, of course, upon South Africa for its survival, and even upon Mozambique as well, because you know they have the ports. Um, but it's, 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 there's no democracy in Swaziland. There never has been. You know, it's, it's, it's ruled by an all-powerful king, and uh, the, the customs and the way, or the way of rule is, 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 has always been. It's, it's a, an African custom. It's the way they've always done it, the Swazis. So it's not a democratic country, but it's a very beautiful country. Um, there are not many people there. I mean, there are more cattle in Swaziland than there are people. Um, but the people are not happy anymore with the, the way things are there. I mean, you know, King Muswati is, is a very, very wealthy man. And, um, you know, the, the, the gap between the haves and the have-nots continues to grow. And I, I think he's got a problem there right now. Yes, it seems like there's been a. It's I believe it's Africa's last absolute monarchy. It's a very interesting story. I was I was actually reading um, up on it because of, of when you'd mentioned the story to me, and I'd obviously heard you know stories of, of the old kings of, of Swaziland, which were always you know sort of made good copy in the UK. But um... yeah, the fact that they are you know allowed to have all these wives, um, I think the the <laughs> the, the fifty year old king. Uh, at the moment, I think he has 15 wives and over 20 children. Uh, but his father was ahead of him. You know, he had, I think he had 125 wives. 
but he also he reigned you know obviously just doing him good to all these women because he, he lived to a ripe old age well over 80 um so he was doing something right but i think it, i think it's a very good point you're, you're absolutely right that that absolute monarchies are also so so rare now it's it's it, people forget that there are even a few left i think there's eswatini saudi arabia oman brunei and you know that's that's almost it um even ones which were recently like jordan and kuwait have gone to constitutional yes. monarchy so it's very, I, very I, I always look upon those not as sort of a monarchy i always thought that that was more of a kind of i don't know one would one say you're the historian but w would you say it's just more of a tribal thing or a, a clan thing well i think um, the modern definition i i think the thing is now that you you bring in you know because of constitutional monarchies saudi arabia is very much an absolute monarchy in the sense there is no constitution to check it is entirely the ruling family which yes. decides everything for the country um and the same in brunei and but and there are very few left i i i know because there were big protests against the sultan of brunei who has a lot of of course big investments around the world and especially in america there were a lot of protests about his um anti-gay laws in brunei and i think the americans who were trying to protest it had a lot of problems because there was no one to approach you have one leader, and, and that's the Sultan himself. Now they're smaller countries like Eswatini, but but it's it's interesting that there's still a few left, and how you deal with that. And and normally absolute monarchies don't tend to go down without a fight. It's because, you know, there's so much for them to lose. Yes, it's interesting. Uh, quite, I find this quite humorous, really, that the the, the new king enforced the, the 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 change of name of his country from from Swaziland, because he, he says that um, many people in the world were confusing Swaziland with Switzerland. Um, I suppose it sounds similar, but I found that quite ironical. Yes, it's quite interesting, that, isn't it, uh, to change the whole name of the country for that. Um, in all three of these stories, what happens in Mozambique and in East Africa in general with security, I think what happens... Um, in Swaziland and what happens to Zuma and the, and, and the trial in South Africa, all of these will, will give ideas of the future of Africa, which I think yes. is such a complex and important topic. But, but these And you know, it all goes back again to African culture. Uh, will, will, you know, will the African culture be allowed to continue in the future? For example, you know, we, we, we're, saying, we're saying these things about the king of Swaziland, Swati. Uh, you know, for example, his, his mother. I mean, I, I think when I was in Swaziland, they used to call the queen mother the, the she-elephant or something like that, a very powerful woman. And I think reigns alongside the king, the queen mother does. Now, this is a, an African culture that you know some people in Swaziland want to see continue and it's the same in South Africa you know they want to see Zuma saved because of, of, of African culture because of their beliefs yet but at the same time they they all want to become westernized uh, you know and so on but then others you know want, want to are looking towards the east you know some of them are saying oh gosh you know I'd like to become more, more, more like the Chinese, for example. But what's happened to the culture of the Africans, and, you know, and amongst all this, this, this change of, of, of lifestyle, this change of, uh, you know, the, the generations as they're coming through? 
this kind of evolution, if you like. Is it an evolution or is it, is it, is it a, 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 something that's going backwards? One, one doesn't know. Mm. But it's quite interesting, Patrick, to, to you know, and, and talking to the young people now that I know, for example, in, in Southern Africa, young African chaps and, and ladies, girls and boys and young people, and I'm talking people in their teens, they, most of them that I know and speak with uh, have aspirations towards Western, to the Western cultures. Um, and so they, they actually don't want to know really too much about their, their African ways. They, they're interested in the roots, the historical roots perhaps, but they don't want to live like that anymore. Yes. Um, and so, you know, the, the argument about Zuma and Mugabe as well didn't go down well with the younger generation. Because they're saying, no, hold on, you know, those old laws and those old rules were applicable perhaps in the old times, but they're not applicable anymore because it's a different world we live in now. And Alan, thank you once again for for a fascinating podcast and a big thank you to all our listeners for getting us into 29 countries and for following us so keenly in the story of the book. And we hope you'll join us as we expand into new adventures like Clubhouse and Swell Recording. We're really looking forward to that. It's going to be fun. It'll be very fun and very exciting. Well, listen, Alan, thank you again, and thank you to everyone for listening. As we were recording this podcast, the news has just come through that Jacob Zuma has been imprisoned for 15 months and has handed himself in to South African authorities.